0: Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Thank you so much uh, for letting me be here and uh, letting me have a chance to just to dive into God's Word with you this morning. It really is a real honor uh, for me to get to be here and be uh, worshiping with you this morning. I, I come with greetings from uh, our family at Ethos in Nashville, and uh, I come specifically with greetings from Katie and Will Shinnick. I was hanging out with Will yesterday. I know a lot of you know them. And uh, just had, he and I spent the weekend together, had a father son retreat, and uh, just got to have a lot, of, a lot of fun. So I was talking with him yesterday. He told me to tell everybody hi. So uh, I'm really delighted to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up uh, to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, that's where we're we'll going to be spending the bulk of our time. We'll, you might do a little bit of flipping uh, to some other places as well, but that's where we're going to camp out the most of our time. little intro if you're going, who's this guy uh, standing in front of me? My name's Aaron Etheridge and uh, I serve as a pastor at Ethos Church in Nashville. I am husband to Amy Etheridge and father to Elijah, Torin, Dahlia, and Kara. We've got a full house, two boys, two girls, never a dull moment. We're always on the go all the time. Um, they wanted to be here with them this morning, but because it's always on the go all the time, uh, there were other things this weekend, so they're not going to be here with us this morning, but they send their greetings and their love as well. So uh, really a joy to be here with you. I'm going to start Uh, Just in prayer, asking the Lord to speak to us, to guide us as we open up his word together. So let's pray. Lord, I love you. Love you, Lord. That, That chorus we're singing, it is true. It is, it's the truest thing, the truest thing, that you are good. You are good. You love us. You seek us out. You have healed us. You have forgiven us. You have your eyes on us, and Lord, I I stand up here this morning. I'm I'm humbled, Lord, to stand before a part of your body, your church. Very few people in this room even know me, Father. They know nothing about me, and yet they've given me a chance to stand up here to hold out your word, hold out your name. And Lord, you know I don't take it lightly. Uh, it is it is a holy thing to talk about you and who you are and how you see us and how you love us and how we pursue you. And so, Father, I stand um, humbled before you. I ask in the name of Jesus, would you let your name be lifted high? If there's anything I say, Lord, that is distracting, if there's anything I say that is not of you, Lord, would you completely remove it? Lord, would you let me, uh, the deliverer of the message, be just completely forgettable, but would you make your name completely unignorable? As we open your Word and as we dive into what you have to say to us this morning, we love you, Lord. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts as we open your Word and as we listen to what you have for us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. We give thanks, Amen. So, about uh, about two years ago, a little over two years, two and a half years ago. Uh, I went through uh, just an interesting season in my life where uh, not many people knew it, only those that were closest to me. I was just really in kind of a a valley, kind of a a dark spot in my life. And uh, if I had to describe it, I would say probably what I was experiencing was some sort of like low-grade depression, um, just really down. And in the middle of that, I was really wrestling out with my faith, like struggling to know what I believed in prayer and you know as someone who has given their life to be a pastor someone who is like supposed to make a living by preaching and praying and telling other people how to follow jesus this was a significant struggle for me and uh, on top of that i was preparing to take a trip to india with a team to work with some church planters that we have there and train these church planters in india and in the middle of prepping for that trip i'm just in this place of kind of darkness trying to figure out what it is that i believe and in the middle of this like tough spot Uh, I remember one of our elders uh, came to me at Ethos. One of our elders at Ethos came to me, and he said, "Hey, uh, we were praying for you. My wife and I are praying for you, and we believe my wife believes that she has a word to share with you, and we'd like to take you to lunch so we can share this with you." Because they knew kind of what I was walking through, I'm like, "That sounds amazing. Like, I need, I need something." So we go to lunch together. I went in very like hopeful that there was just going to be this word of encouragement. Uh, from this woman in our church and we sit down to lunch and she says we're waiting for our food to come and she says hey I just want to dive in there's a lot I want to share with you this morning she says the word I had for you came while I was praying for you the other day I was reading Luke chapter 22 and I was like praying for you and felt like the Lord took me straight to this chapter straight to this verse and specifically the verse that stood out to me was this place where Jesus looks at Peter and he says Simon Simon Satan has asked to sift you like wheat and I went, not the encouragement that I came looking for. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I thought this lunch was going to be. You know, a little bit, a little bit disorienting there in the moment. You know, I'm like, wait, wait, you came to encourage me that Satan wants to sift me? Like the only other story I know of in the Bible where Satan come and asks for permission to sift somebody is a story of Job. And if you haven't read that one, it didn't go so well for Job. Lost his home, his family, his kids, his livelihood, everything stripped from him when Satan asks to sift him. So I'm sitting across the lunch table going, why in the world would you ask me to lunch to tell me this thing? And you know, the reality is what I was feeling in that moment ended up really great, by the way, really beautiful words she had for me. But in that moment where she said those words to me, probably I was feeling very similar to what the apostle Peter was feeling when Jesus says these words to him in chapter 22. And we're going to read that here in just a minute. But you got to imagine what Peter was feeling as Jesus says these words to him. He's like, hey, Simon, hey, Peter, uh, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. What in the world is going on here? What is Jesus trying to communicate to Peter? And what is it that he's trying to accomplish in Peter? I believe that what Jesus was doing in Peter right now, right there in that moment, is a crucial message for us followers of Jesus who are living in this world in this time and in this moment. That sifting is central to our existence of following Jesus in the here and in the now. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. We're going to read this together. But before we get to the verse where Jesus says this uh, to Peter, I think we need to set up the story a little bit. And So the context here, this was not, this is not just a random comment made by Jesus randomly to Peter. And it was made by Peter at a specific moment in a specific time in his life uh, with Peter. And so this is the very last meal that Jesus is going to share with his disciples, his 12 closest friends. They've gathered together. Jesus knows he's about to die the next day. They've gathered together to share a meal. And this meal was deeply significant. It wasn't just going out and grabbing burgers together. This was like, no, there's something meaningful happening here in this moment. In fact, Jesus, when talking about this meal in chapter 22, if you look in verse 15, this is what he says to the disciples. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus is going, I want you to understand the significance of this. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And then look at verse uh, verse 18. He says this. He says, "I, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Like Jesus is laying out for the disciples the significance of this moment. He's said, like, we're gathered around this meal. I've eagerly desired to eat it with you. I won't eat it again until I eat it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, this was provocative language from Jesus to his disciples. He's speaking to a group of 12 men, first century Jewish men, who have certain expectations about the kingdom of God and what Messiah is going to accomplish. And Jesus is just speaking this language, really affirming and stoking the flames in their hearts. He says, I'm not going to eat this again until I eat it again in, in, in the kingdom of God. This is not random language Jesus is using. He's referring to what the Bible calls the messianic banquet or the bridegroom feast. There are prophecies all through the Old Testament. Isaiah 25 is the most clear where it talks about in that day we will eat with God. We will eat choice food. It will be a feast and a celebration for the people of God at the renewal of all things. This is what we see happening at the end of Revelation. And Jesus is going, hey, guys, this meal that we're sharing right now, I've eagerly desired to have it with you. And I won't eat it again until I eat it anew in the kingdom of God. You know the apostles are like, I mean, they're gripping the table. They're going, this is it. This is the moment. This is the thing that we've been expecting, the thing that we've been waiting for. They are ready for Jesus to establish the kingdom. And this is why the very next moment in the story, it feels kind of confusing to us. In one minute, Jesus is taking the cup and he's setting up this sacred meal that we do every single Sunday. He's like setting it up, taking the cup, passing it to him. And then the very next moment, the apostles are like, hey, who do you think is the greatest here? (laughs) It's like, wait, what? See, but when you understand, they knew what Jesus was talking about. There's this amazing uh, moment in Matthew chapter 19, we won't read it right now, but Jesus, this is before this meal happens in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, hey, I tell you the truth, you are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel. This is what Jesus tells the apostles. He's affirming in them their expectation for a kingdom that was ruled by a son of David who sits on the throne of God. He's saying, guys, you've got this right. You've got it right. I am going to sit on a throne, and you're going to sit on 12 thrones with me. He's like laying it out there for them, and now here they are at the meal, and he's telling them, and their expectations are fever-pitched, so they're going, hey, guys, I wonder which one of us, which one of our thrones is going to be closer to Jesus? Like, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And I love what Jesus does here. He does not answer them by, by squashing their understanding of the kingdom. He actually, he starts going, guys, you got to understand what it's like to be a ruler in the kingdom of God. And he starts talking about, you got to be, make your, the first will be last, you know, make yourself a servant. You know, he starts talking about how the Gentiles lorded over people. You're not to be like that. Okay. And then he, again, affirms their expectations In verse 30, look, he says, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Can we see what's happening here? This is this intense moment for the disciples. Sentence after sentence from Jesus, he's going, yes, I have come to establish a kingdom. Yes, you are going to reign with me in my kingdom. Yes, this is the last time I'll have the Passover I've eagerly desired at this moment is deeply significant. And the disciples' expectation is like fever pitch. They are ready for Jesus to set up his kingdom right then and right there. It's this moment of great anticipation for the disciples. And then you get to verse 31, and Jesus says this. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You talk about the ultimate buzzkill. I mean, these guys are ready, and then Jesus says this statement. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You know, you know that it's serious when Jesus, one, he doesn't even use his like, affectionate nickname. You know Peter was Simon's nickname, right? Peter was not his real name. It was a nickname that Jesus affectionately gave to him. And here in this moment, he addresses him, he doesn't use his affectionate nickname, and then he says his name twice. It's kind of like, for those of you with kids, if you're anything like me, when I really mean business, I don't just say my kid's first name. I say their first and middle name, and if it's really serious, it's first, middle, and last name, and they know I mean business. This is that moment for Jesus. He's going, Simon, Simon, Jesus is serious in this moment. He's looking at the apostles. He says, Satan has asked to sift you. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible. Some of your Bibles might have the, just the word you there. and looks singular as though this is just addressed to Peter. But the reality is the, the word there in Greek is plural. If Jesus was in the south, what he would have said was, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all y'all. As wheat. This is what Jesus is communicating here in this moment. He's going, this, there is a sifting coming on you, my brothers. There's a sifting coming. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I imagine the tension, the discomfort that I felt sitting at the lunch table that day where that woman gave me this same word. I imagine it's what Peter and the apostles were feeling. Their expectations were fever pitch. Suddenly Jesus says, no, actually Satan's asking to sift you like wheat. And for some of us, I want you to imagine that Jesus is speaking to you and he gives you this message that Satan is asking to sift you like wheat. And we go, why do we feel that heaviness? Why did I feel that heaviness that day? That woman shared that with me. You know, I think one of the things that happens in us, we read this story and we, we assume that sifting equals Suffering. We make an assumption that if someone is being sifted in their life, we make an assumption that it means there is suffering involved. That sifting involves suffering, but sifting is not to be confused with suffering. Sifting may involve suffering, but it is not one and the same thing. To understand what Jesus was trying to say to Peter, we've got to understand what it means to be sifted. Now, In my context, I preach, you know, in downtown Nashville, not many in my audience are farmers. I don't know if there are any farmers in the room, but I'm guessing most of us don't spend a whole lot of time sifting wheat. So what did Jesus mean by sifting wheat? This was a common uh, action that was done in their day. So uh, maybe a better understanding to understand what sifting looks like. You know, my kids, when we go to the beach, they have this little toy. It's about this big around, you know, and it's uh, about that deep. And at the bottom, there's a bunch of little holes. It almost looks like a colander or something. And what do they do? They go down and they'll scoop up the sand. They get a little water in there and they start shaking it back and forth. Why do they do this? What are they looking for? Somebody shout shouted out. What are they looking for? Shells. You're looking for shells or maybe a crab or something exciting. You see, what they're doing is sifting. What sifting does, as you shake it out, everything that has no value falls through the small holes, and everything that is of value stays at the top. And after you shake out your sifter, if there's nothing left in the top, if there's nothing of value left after the sifting, there was nothing of value in there in the first place. What sifting does is it removes that which has little value, and it leaves that which has much value. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon... Satan is trying to sift you like wheat. What is it that Satan is trying to sift out of Peter? What was he trying to sift out of him? We find the answer in what Jesus says to him next. I love how Jesus responds. He looks at Peter. He says, hey, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. May not fail. Now, I've read this story so many times, and you know the reality is, most of my life I read that, and I'm like, Jesus, that sounds like the lamest encouragement I've ever heard. <laughs> like, you just told him he's being sifted, and now you're just going to tell him you're going to pray that that his faith doesn't fail. It's like, Jesus, why didn't you just like say, Hey, Satan asked Peter, but I said no. I got you out of that sieve right away. You're not going to be sifted at all. He's like, no, it feels like that moment in Mark chapter 2. Some of you have read this story where a group of friends bring this lame man, this crippled man, to Jesus. The guy can't even walk. He shows up on a mat. They lower him through a roof in front of Jesus. And what's the first thing Jesus says to him? He looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we read that story and we're like, Jesus, bro, this dude can't walk. (laughs) Like, he's looking to walk. And you're sitting here talking about the spiritual state of his soul and sin. It's like, what is going on there? Jesus is revealing the priorities of his heart, and he's revealing the priorities of what matters most to those that he's created, to those that he loves, to those that he's leading. You see, Jesus, when he answers Peter, it wasn't his response to Satan was not to take away the sifting, not to take away the trial, not to tell Satan, no, no, Jesus understood and he still understands that there is something that is worth far more than your comfort. There is something that is worth far more than my ease of life or my physical well-being. There is something that is worth far more than even financial prosperity, far more than gold. Jesus understood that our faith It's the most valuable thing that we possess. Do you know that? Do you know that your faith, this is not, I'm not talking theoretical church language, like your faith, your trust, your belief, your hope in Jesus is the most important thing about you. So that's a pretty big statement, pretty big statement. So let's, let's back up a little bit. What is faith? Jesus thinks it's so important. Jesus thinks it matters so much. We've got to ask the question, what, what is it? What is faith? Well, you know, Hebrews 11 defines it really well for us. You know, faith is confidence in what you hope for. It's certainty or assurance of what you don't see. You know, your belief, faith is your belief, your trust in Jesus' ability to save you. Your trust, your belief in Jesus' ability to save you from judgment from the wrath of God from sin and from death no matter what this world throws at you Jesus has got you Jesus has you that's what faith is it's your trust in his ability to deliver you from anything that this world or Satan can throw at you Hebrews 1:16, or Hebrews 11:6 makes it really clear he says listen in the writers of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Isn't that, isn't that what we all, like, if you're a follower of Jesus, isn't that what we long for? Like, I long to please God. I want to please God. And yet the writer of Hebrews, what he would say is, listen, without faith, it is utterly hopeless. It's impossible for you to please God without faith. Without faith, you know, the apostle Peter The one to whom this statement was made in Luke 22, he he has much to say about faith. In his first letter, you know, decades after this moment in his life over this meal with Jesus, where Jesus says, you're going to be sifted uh, by Satan, you know, the Apostle Peter finds himself writing letters to the church who are in the middle of hardship that none of us can even fathom. Family members being arrested, family members dying, being executed. Like, they're going through intense trials, and the Apostle Peter will write to them uh, I love what he says in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there. 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 7, this is what Peter says about faith. He's talking about their trials, their suffering. He says, listen, these have come, these trials, these sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your what? Say it out. Of your faith. So that the proven genuineness of your faith which has greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire. He says, your faith has greater value than financial security, than financial wealth, than gold. And then he keeps going. He says, he goes, I'm writing so that these trials have come, so that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, to the apostle Peter, faith was the most central, the most crucial thing. As he writes a letter to suffering Christians, he says, says, listen, I'm writing this. These trials have come so that your faith may be proven genuine because you are receiving the end goal of your faith, which is salvation. He says, your faith, this this, this ability to not even be able to see Jesus, I can't see him right now. He goes, you haven't seen him, but you trust him. You believe in him. You know what he's doing and what he's going to do. This faith is so central to who we are as followers of Jesus. Peter learned that lesson in a really hard way by Jesus looking at him and saying, hey, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Jesus is emphasizing to Peter In Luke 22, he's emphasizing the essential nature of his faith. Our faith is so crucial to who we are as followers of Jesus. And this is why Satan's goal is to sift faith out of Peter. To sift out his faith. And this is why Jesus prays the way he does. He doesn't say, hey, Simon, don't worry. Nothing bad's going to happen. He doesn't say, Simon, don't worry. No trials or hardships are going to come. He says, Simon... Don't worry, I've prayed. And I've prayed that your faith may not fail. Sifting, sifting by nature is not just suffering. Sifting is any attempt by our enemy, sifting is any attempt by Satan to get you, to get me, to get us, to let go of our faith. In Jesus any experience that threatens to break apart your faith is what Jesus is describing here with Simon Peter it is a sifting I love the way John Piper describes sifting and talking about this text this is what he says he says the sifting of Simon Peter and the other disciples is Satan's effort to destroy their faith and this remains Satan's main goal today it is relatively unimportant to Satan whether we are healthy or sick, whether we are rich or poor, what he wants is to sift out our faith. And if he can do it by suffering, he'll try that. If he can do it by wealth, he will try that. What he's saying here is Satan will leverage whatever means necessary to shake us, to shake us from trusting in Jesus' ability to do what he said he's going to do, which is to renew all things and to give us eternal life. This is what our faith is in. And Satan will leverage anything at his disposal to try to shake us free from our faith and our trust in Jesus' ability to do that very thing. For Peter, the the sifting, what we see in this story, the sifting was not necessarily connected to his own personal suffering. It's really interesting if you, if you read this story, um, you know, Peter, Peter didn't actually immediately go through a bunch of suffering after this, but he was sifted. Well, how was he sifted? You know, for Peter, the sifting was connected to a shaking of his worldview and a shaking of his perception of how other people thought about him. It was connected to a shaking of his worldview and a shaking of his perception of how other people thought about him. Here's what I mean. Let's look at the first one, worldview. Peter was about to be majorly shaken in his understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah. Simon Peter was going to be shaken. He's going to be sifted by his understanding of what he thought for Jesus to be Messiah. Now, I, I believe that Peter had a clear understanding. Let me make sure you understand. I believe Peter had a clear, clear picture of who the Messiah is, who the Messiah is supposed to be, what the Messiah is supposed to do. I thought Peter, I think Peter, Peter saw that very clearly. It's why he was so excited over the Passover meal while Jesus is like breaking it and giving them the meal and telling them about 12 thrones. I think Peter, he's going, I know Messiah is going to reign. He's a king. He's coming to reign. Peter believed that. And I think Peter was right. Peter still is right about that fact. The thing that Peter misunderstood is he misunderstood what it would look like for Messiah to enter into his glory. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus' exact words to his followers are said, Don't you know that the Messiah has to suffer before he enters his glory? The place where Peter and the apostles missed it is they they misunderstood suffering before glory. This is why every time Jesus tried to tell them that he was about to die, be arrested, be murdered, be crucified, they struggled, going, I don't what? What are you talking about, Jesus? You just said you're the Messiah. They misunderstood the path, not the promise. The promise was clear in their minds, but they did not understand that the path of Messiah is a path that is marked by suffering before glory. And so when when Peter would see the one he believed to be Messiah and get arrested, when Peter would see the one he believed Messiah be tried, falsely accused, falsely condemned, when Peter would see the one he believed Messiah hanging on a cross and dying, Jesus knew that his worldview was going to be shaken. I, I'm convinced, beloved, that our understanding of following a suffering Messiah still leaves us shaken at times. The reality is there's a lot of people that want to peddle a gospel that says, hey, follow Jesus, trust Jesus, everything will be rosy, everything will be great, everything will go well in your life. Beloved, this is not the message of our Messiah. Our Messiah said, take up your cross, follow me. Our Messiah said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In this world you may have trouble, but I've got it, I've got it. Our faith is trusting that Jesus really has it, The problem is some of us have been told that, hey, no, everything's good, everything's good, because Jesus suffered, you don't have to. But we look around the world and we see folks suffering. We see followers of Jesus that are suffering. We see folks that are having hardship in their life. We're experiencing hardship in our life. The path of a suffering Messiah still threatens to leave us shaken, even today in our current culture. The pain and the brokenness of the world does not make void the promises of Jesus. It actually reinforces The path of Messiah that he said, suffering before glory. If our leader, if our Messiah suffered in this world, then why should we get any different before we enter glory with him? Hardship will come. And I'm going to deal with that here in just a minute. I know that's kind of heavy. But you see, the Apostle Peter, what he was being shaken in here was his worldview, his understanding of Messiah. He expected it to be glory right off the bat. And Jesus says, now it's suffering before glory, and that was going to shake Peter in his faith. But the second thing that was being shaken was kind of his perception of what other people thought about him. You see, Peter was shaken when he sat around a fire, and people came up to him and said, hey, didn't you follow this guy, Jesus? Didn't you know him? And Peter's like, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. <laughs> don't, don't think that I was one of those guys. Three different times. Three times he denied knowing Jesus. His fear was connected to what people would think about him or what people would do to him. This was the sifting for Peter, a shaking of his worldview, a shaking of what other people thought of him. You know, I, I believe, I really do believe it, deep within, deep in my bones, I believe it. We are living as followers of Jesus in a time where it is absolutely essential for us to understand this principle of sifting. You've got to understand this. You know, unless you've been living under a rock for the last two years, you've seen the number of things that are just unfolding in our world that just seem to be shaking everything that we know, right? All these events that have transpired over the last couple years that seem to be shaking us. I believe what's happening in our world, what's happening in our nation, what's happening in the church right now, it is not just inconvenience. It's not just shaking. It's not just heart. It is a sifting of the people of God. Oftentimes, this life is going, not going to go the way that we expect it. And the reality is we have an enemy, a very real enemy that wants nothing more than to get us as followers of Jesus to let go of our trust and our faith in Jesus's ability to deliver us out of any kind of hardship or any kind of trouble. That's Satan's goal. And as we look over the last two years, it just seems like this like obvious life study, this case study, and the reality that life is not always going to go the way that we want it to. I I just start this morning, I was just playing it back in my mind to the last two years. You know, I I think back, I remember where I was when I found out that the NBA finals had been canceled because of COVID. And it was like, whoa, (laughs) that feels like a big deal. Somebody took a serious financial hit. This decision was not made lightly. I had no idea how big it really was. I remember the first Sunday that we canceled our gathering as a church at Ethos, and I thought, ah, this will be a week or two, 14 months later. For 14 months, we were not able to meet in our venues as a church family. You know, COVID has shaken us, right? It's shaken us. But it hasn't just been COVID and a pandemic. I think about everything that went down at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. I don't know if any of you remember there was an election. You guys remember that? It was like an election in our nation that seemed to shake what so many Americans have come to trust in so dearly, our democratic process, seemed to be on the precipice of falling into just total chaos and disorder. We went through 2020, we saw riots, we saw protests, we saw anger, we saw violence, and then it didn't stop. It's like, we have kind of in this place where it feels like every wave that breaks on the beach day after day seems to be this new revelation, this new event of something hard that's happening in the world, the war in Ukraine. I think about, I mean, when did, how did we get to the place where when I'm in the store and I can't find something, I just go, oh, supply chain, <laughs> supply chain crisis. It's like, how did we get here? Thing after thing has come in and just keeps pounding on the shores. It's the stock market crashing. It's protests all weekend across our nation about abortion. It's all these things that seem to be shaking and shifting in our culture. And, beloved, what I believe is happening is Satan is sitting, watching. He's not behind all of the events. He's not causing the events. But I promise you, he is watching the people of Jesus, and he's got a sieve in hand. He's ready to sift us to see what remains at the top as we are shaken by the events of the world. Will there be faith? Will there be faith in your life? Will there be faith left in the sieve after the shaking? In the hardships of your life, will there be faith left in the sieve after the shaking when we are sifted? Our faith in Jesus, I'm realizing how important it is that our faith in Jesus is the only source of hope, the only source of salvation. Faith in Jesus is the only source of justice in the world. And this is the essence of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus in a shaking world. I've been so struck over the last couple of years and talking with several different people. I remember I was talking with one woman and talking with her, I realized, I'm like, oh my goodness, you have faith in something, but I don't think it's actually faith in Jesus. I remember she told me, it was during the pandemic, she told me that because of the way that her denomination was handling the pandemic, she felt like her faith in Jesus was being shaken. I'm going, okay, Where is the faith? What I've I've realized, beloved, is that a misplaced faith is no faith at all. You see, what happens when hardship comes, what happens when the things that we trust in get shaken is that we start to realize what we actually trust in and what we actually have faith in. When the institutions that we think will provide our freedom and provide uh, our security, when those get to get shaken, we begin to realize what we actually have faith in. And Satan is right there, just sifting, going, will there be faith? Will there be faith left on top of the sieve?" You know, beloved, I say this very humbly. I hope it's okay that I call you beloved. I, don't, I know I don't know most of you, but I love you. you know, my, my brothers and my sisters in Jesus, even though we've never met, and so you are my beloved. You know, this is so crucial for us as followers of Jesus right now. Please, please hear this. Um, I don't preach politics. I, I just don't do it. It's, I just don't think it's the right thing from, uh, personally. So if you hear anything political in what I'm saying, just know I'm not trying to point one side or the other. I don't really care, honestly. It's like uh, faith is in King Jesus. That's my politics. But he, here's, the, here's the thing. Faith, <laughs> faith, Faith in a particular leader, faith in a political party, Faith in any economic system, any economic system, including capitalism, faith in any, any kind of system, any kind of government, any kind of plant, anything of this world, any of these things can be shaken and they will crumble in the sieve of Satan. If my faith is in anything outside of Jesus and his ability to save me, to redeem me, to forgive me, to deliver me, to renew me, to resurrect me. If there's anything that my faith is in besides Jesus, that thing will crumble in the sieve of Satan. When he starts sifting us, those things crumble. And I'm not, you know, sometimes when I speak on this, I'm I'm afraid that people are going to think I'm like anti-patriotic or anti-america i'm not like i'm so grateful to live where i love but i do believe that many followers of jesus in our nation have put a little too much faith in the power of democracy we put a little too much faith in our security as our nation and its ability to keep us safe and comfortable beloved over the decades over the centuries since jesus walked this earth nations have risen and nations have fallen but the name of jesus has remained and will remain into eternity This is where we put our faith. So when we look around us and the stock market's falling, when we look around us and we don't, you know, we don't trust those who are leading us or we're suspicious, it's like all these things that are shaken. When these things are shaken, a misplaced faith will be revealed for what it is. And and beloved, if Satan can sift our faith, then he has us. He has us. This morning I, I come, I'm just pleading with you to make first things first eyes on Jesus. But what is it that Jesus is trying to teach the 12 apostles here in Luke 22? Three simple things, and I'm going to wrap up. Three simple things that I think Jesus is trying to teach. Number one, I believe he is giving the apostles and us a framework for how to approach the hardships of this life. What is the framework? How do we deal with the hardships of this life? You know, this is not the only place where Jesus foretells of suffering and doesn't rescue from it not the only place where he, I mean, he does this several places. I mean, he says, I mentioned this earlier, you know, in, in John's gospel, he says, in this world you will have trouble. But there's this almost like disturbing message. In Revelation chapter 2, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Smyrna. He, he's speaking through John to a church in Smyrna. And listen, I mean, just listen to what he says. I want you to imagine being in a church and someone gets up and goes, I got a revelation from Jesus. I'm going to read this letter to us. Uh, this is from the Lord. He says, verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, to sift you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victors crown. It's a sobering word. If Jesus told you today that you were going to have to endure jail, persecution, suffering, even up to the point of death, what would that evoke in you? What would it evoke in me? Would I trust him? Would I trust him? That's what he's calling. He's like, no, hold on to your faith. Hold on to your faith in me. All of these things, they can take everything from you but that. They can never touch it. You know, I don't know what particular hardships or sufferings those of you in this family may have been experiencing. I know at Ethos over the last couple of years, we've, I've just watched pastoral crisis after pastoral crisis arise in our church family. Marriages that are on the rocks, parents that are at their wits end, folks who are walking away from Jesus completely because their faith has been shaken so much. I've had to sit with so many people that are dealing with uh, you know, mental health issues, In so many ways over the past two years, folks whose depression has just reared its head, folks whose bipolar has taken hold, suicidal ideation, addictions, you know, all these things over the last couple years as everything has been shaken. And I don't know what your hardships are. I don't know what sufferings you've encountered over the last two years, whether it's related to the shaking of the world or something personal. Um, What I want to hold out to you is I'm begging you to keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the author of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. He's the only one, he's the only one that holds out hope that not even death itself can steal from you. He's it. And if you're in a place where you're feeling that shaken, I wanna encourage you Keep your eyes on him. And if you're not in a place where you're being shaken, I love what Jesus does here in the story. He doesn't just give a framework for how we understand suffering and hardship in our own lives, he he lays out a framework for how we deal with it when we see it in each other's life. What does he do for Peter? He prays for him. He's like, Oh, Peter, I have prayed that your faith will not fail. Will we follow in Jesus' footsteps when we see pain? brokenness, hardship, suffering in the body of Jesus? Will we follow in Jesus' footsteps and pray that their faith will not fail? Yes, of course, we want to pray that the marriage will be reconciled. Yes, of course, we want to pray that they will be healed, that the cancer will be taken away. Yes, of course, we want to pray that they will find another job. Yes, of course, we want to pray for all the outcomes that we're looking for. But will we be a church that comes alongside our brothers and sisters and says, come what may. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. I'm praying that you will trust in Jesus and his ability to redeem and to restore and to make all things new. Will we pray for one another like that? Will we believe that our faith really is the most important thing about us? See, Jesus gives a framework. How do we understand suffering? How do we approach it? Man, we walk together with it. We pray for one another, for each other's faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus. But number two, what he's teaching them, it's not just about a framework. He's also teaching them where he is in the middle of the suffering. You ever wondered that? You ever been like, where is Jesus in the middle of this hard thing that I'm going through? You know, it's interesting when you ask the question, if you look at the story of Peter, if we go, hey, who actually suffered in this story? In this story of Jesus going, hey, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you. Who experienced the most suffering if you keep reading the story? You know, Peter may have been the one being sifted, but he is not the one that experienced the most suffering. In fact, Peter's suffering seems pretty light and momentary. I mean, you read, you read what happens to him. It feels pretty like not a whole lot. I mean, yeah, it's like he. But he he, he saw his friend get arrested. He's up, but he was not the one going through it. It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who was betrayed. Jesus is the one who was left alone, being falsely accused. Jesus is the one who was beaten, spit upon, nailed to a cross, brutally murdered. If anyone hear this, listen. If anyone had something to gain by pulling Peter out of the sifting, it was Jesus. Don't you know it would have made things a whole lot easier on Jesus if you were to be like, all right, Peter, never mind, you're right here with me. Pull that sword out, cut off the ear. No, go for the neck. Go for the neck. Don't go for the ear. Would have made things a lot easier on Jesus. Jesus is the one who entered into the suffering because of Peter's sifting. When we are sifted, beloved, Jesus does not watch disinterested from a far off place we have a Messiah who entered into suffering in ways that most of us will never have to experience Lord willing we have a Messiah who entered into suffering who passed through suffering, who came out victorious who now understands every bit of pain you've ever felt, every bit of hardship you've ever walked through, he understands it he's felt it and now he sits at the right hand of God praying, interceding for you with you. You see, as we are sifted, as we experience a sifting, Jesus is right there in it with us. And he's suffering every bit as much as we are in the middle of it. So Jesus gives them a framework. Hey, how do you deal with trouble? You pray for one another. Jesus shows them, where, are, where am I in the sifting? I'm right here. I've experienced the suffering. I'm in it with you. And then third, and this is where we'll land, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side of Sifting. He gives us a glimpse of what's on the other side. I love what he says to Peter. He says, listen, Simon, Simon, I've prayed that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is such a simple thing that we could just breeze right past, but I want you to see what Jesus' assumption here is for Peter. He says, Peter, when you've turned back, I've prayed that your faith will not fail, and when you've turned back, when you've turned back, Peter, I've got something for you. Turn back and strengthen your brothers. Some of you may be in a season where you've begun to realize that you've had a misplaced faith. You've had a faith in something that's being shaken. I mean, the stock market, it's revealing it is not a place to go for security. The economy in general is not a place to go for comfort and security. Some of you may be in a place where some things that you've trusted in are shaking or you're realizing that you've had a misplaced faith and something is being sifted. And and Jesus looks at us and he says, keep going. I've prayed for your faith that it may not fail. And on the other side, I've got something for you. Some of you may be sitting here and you've been sifted and secretly in your heart, you've actually already gone, this thing is such a, it's a crock. Like, I don't believe in it. You've already turned your faith from Jesus. Some of you may be sitting here right now and you're going, I already kind of don't believe this. And what I want you to know, Jesus looks at you the same way he looks at Peter. He's not giving up on you. He's praying for you. He's praying for your faith. And he's going, listen, when you come back, I've got something for you. When you turn back, you know, the reality is Peter actually did fail, completely denied Jesus three different times, just straight up denied knowing him he failed, and if you're feeling right now, if you're sitting here and you're in a place in your life where you're like, I've already failed, I've walked away from Jesus, I don't believe in him anymore, I just haven't told anybody I don't believe in him anymore. If that's you sitting here, Peter was just like you. He was just like you. And Jesus says, when you come back, I've got something for you. It's this beautiful picture of the invitation of Jesus. No matter where you are in this sifting, Whether you feel like your faith has crumbled and fallen through, he's got something new for you. Whether you're in the middle of it just holding on to faith with all that you've got, Jesus says, I've got something for you. He holds out promise. He holds out purpose in the midst of your sifting. Just like Jesus, our Messiah, passed through suffering and came out in glory, he holds out to us that we can walk through sifting. We can come out on the other side with purpose to strengthen the family of God, to live for the glory of Jesus. To not ever misplace our faith in anything again except for him. This is why the biblical writers over and over again say fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, or set your mind on things above, Colossians chapter 3 Beloved, this is what we're called to, to. Fix our eyes, not on the momentary not on the like passing comforts, not on our finances, not on the government not on our children, not on our marriage not on our job not on our security. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And he has something for us. So I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up here. I'm just going to pray. Now, I, don't, I don't know, all of you, I don't know where you're at this morning, if you're experiencing a sifting. Um, what I want to encourage you with is if you are, if you're feeling sifted, if you're feeling in a hard place where faith is hard to hold on to, please share it with somebody share it with a brother or sister here in this room talk with one of your elders share it with uh, with a close brother or sister and man let's just if anyone shares anything let's just pray let's just keep asking god that our faith will not fail that we will be found a radiant and beautiful bride when christ returns to renew all things let me pray for us lord we love you jesus i'm sorry For all the places in my life where I have put my faith in something else besides you. I've misplaced my faith, my hope in something different. I'm sorry. Lord, we collectively, we repent of putting our hope and our faith and our trust in anything besides you. We declare in our hearts, some of us even with our mouths right now, we declare Jesus you and you alone. Oh, what a glorious promise you've given us. What a glorious promise. Oh Lord, would you, in the name of Jesus, would you pour out the Spirit even right now as we worship? Would you pour out the Spirit on all of us to renew us, renew our minds, remind us of the glorious promise you've held out for us? That even, even if death comes for us, you are victorious and we will resurrect. We will live with you forever. Would you let the glory of that promise just sink deeply and take root in our hearts, that our faith would be unshakable, unsiftable? that we will be found radiant and beautiful, a bride prepared for you at your second coming. We love you, Lord. We hope in you. I pray blessing on my brothers and sisters, blessing on this body of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.